I want to start this episode by telling you a story about my friend Rachel from college. I first met Rachel in a painting class. She had this beautiful brown curly hair, big brown eyes, a huge smile, and she was always laughing. We didn't talk much at first. She sat across the room from me. I was kind of quiet, but I knew right away that I liked her. We had another art class together the following year, but something was different about Rachel. Her beautiful brown curly hair had been replaced by a beautiful silk scarf. I suspected she had cancer, but I wasn't sure. And this time, for whatever reason, maybe the seating was different in the class, Rachel and I became fast friends. I remember I was in her room once in her house off campus, and I was looking at her artwork on the wall. There was something unsaid in the air, creating a space between Rachel and me. I wanted to ask her about her scarf and what had changed with her health since the last semester, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. But I also didn't want to seem like I didn't care, because I did, a lot. Rachel must have known this. She sat me down on her bed and said, I want to tell you my story. Rachel went on to tell me that she had ovarian cancer. She was just 19 or 20 years old at the time. After she told me her story about her cancer, we continued to talk about it, but not much. We just lived and did whatever any other college friends would do. We talked about art and how we wanted to travel abroad together after we graduated. Before winter break that year, we went skiing. Rachel would do this funny thing where she would call any large, four-legged animal a dog. So whenever we saw a deer on the way to the ski area, she would yell, Dog! I laughed every time. That trip to the ski area would be the last time that I would see Rachel. After I returned from winter break, I got a call from one of her close friends. Rachel had died. The cancer had spread throughout her body, and after some time in the hospital, she pushed her oxygen mask away one last time, and that was it. In what felt like an instant, my friend was gone. I didn't even know that she was that sick. Our plans to travel together vanished. There was so much more I wanted to know about her. The reason I tell this story is because I always think about Rachel sitting me down to tell me her story. I don't remember what I said, but I hope I mostly listened. It's hard to know what to say when someone you love, or even someone you barely know, is diagnosed with a terminal illness. Do you ask questions? Do you offer advice? Do you try and make them feel better? Though everyone is different, I wanted to share several perspectives from some of the people I've interviewed. Perhaps they might help us better navigate these conversations, because sometimes, avoiding them entirely can hurt the most. 
It's better to say something than nothing. That's Claire Fisher from the last episode. I think you feel that people avoid you because they don't know what to say. I think that's awful. She's in hospice with terminal bowel cancer. If you know the person well, then just be honest. You know, just to say this is really rubbish. I don't know what to say, but I don't want to ignore you. (laughs) Just kind of say, say what's in your head. So it's okay if that thing that's going on in your head is that you want to show support, but you just don't know what to say. You can let the person be your guide. A good rule of thumb is just to let the patient drive the conversation. That's Adam Hayden from episode 11. And to be okay with silence. He has a terminal brain cancer called glioblastoma. He thinks that sometimes silence and presence are all that a person might need. Um, that some of my very best visits uh, with folks in the hospital and otherwise have just been visits where we've sat quietly together. Um, my, my wife's stepdad, uh, he and I don't share many interests in common, um, and yet uh, he came and visited me several times by himself in the hospital, and a lot of that time we would just be in each other's presence. Um, So think about what you're saying to patients, Um, but I think the other side of the coin is knowing that silence and presence oftentimes is as much, if not more meaningful, uh, than than saying uh, the right thing. So you can let go of having to say the right thing or the perfect thing. I think it's important to say here, too, that this idea of not knowing what to say or fear around the topic of terminal illness or death, is not your fault. These are really hard conversations to have, and our society as a whole has not done a very good job at teaching us how to have them. Our culture has a, you know, very uh, kind of sterilized relationship to mortality and death. That's Jennifer Dunn from episode 12. She has terminal colon cancer. So uh, a lot of people just aren't really comfortable being like in the orbit of somebody who is confronting more immediate mortality and um, would just sort of prefer to look away. I am hopeful that our culture's relationship with death is changing for the better, but the momentum cannot continue without individuals like you and me. You know, it's tricky and I don't, I never like thought less of anybody for saying the wrong thing at the wrong moment because, you know, I recognize it's more, usually they're coming from a good place, they have a good intention, but, but certainly, I mean, sure, how people respond to you can, can really impact you on some days more than others. So while these conversations around terminal illness can be tricky... I don't think that gives us a pass to just look away. Maybe instead, we can look toward the people facing the mortality and listen. If we listen to what is helpful and what is not helpful, then maybe these conversations will get a little easier for everyone. Generally, don't give advice unless the person asks for it. Here's Claire again. Again, the amount of advice that I've had about slightly cranky remedies or... You know, I mean, potentially if you've had the exact same surgery and there's some actual practical, helpful advice that you could offer, then fair enough. But there's lots of this rumours, you know, my 
oh, I know somebody who had the same thing and they died or <laughs> this other, you know, this miracle cure worked for them. You know, they've got a doctor, they've got Google, they probably just need you to bring them some cake and be their friend. This was a common theme for several of the people I interviewed. Not wanting advice unless they ask for it. What I did not find particularly helpful, and there was a lot of this. Back in, to Jen. In like the first several weeks. I, I understand the intention and um, I was always polite in my response, but lots of people will, hey, I, you know, so-and-so, like my cousin's friend had this kind of cancer and they like tried this supplement and only had grapefruit seed oil like for a year and it's now they're better, you know, and, and you should try that. And like, uh, oncology is just a racket and they're trying to just profit off of you. And I don't know, it's just not the time. Like it's just when somebody is already feeling really overwhelmed by the amount of like information that, that they have to digest like very quickly and make really high stakes decisions, that's not the time to be hearing a lot of suggestions like about alternative therapies, at least not for myself. Now for other people that might, they may welcome that more. So I would say, I think if somebody does feel like they want to share information like that, it would be good to just ask like, oh, hey, are you interested in hearing about alternative therapies? And then the patient could say, not really, not at this time, maybe another time, you know, and dealing with enough information right now or yeah potentially or maybe or what is it but I, I think maybe just being uh just being asked if like that's something that somebody's interested in hearing about you know people want to connect and they want to be supportive and maybe that's the what they have in their toolbox toolbox to reach out to you but um yeah that that wasn't particularly helpful and sometimes was just it's like, okay, I'm already thinking about the, this thing, the, the cancer, this like thing that is like taking up so much energy and space in my life and my head already. I don't need a bunch of extra information I didn't ask for, like extra advice in maybe a moment or an afternoon when I'm trying not to think about it that much because I'd like to take the afternoon off. I find this desire for people to give advice really interesting a lot of us really do want to help. We want to be useful. We like to fix things, even things that maybe don't need fixing or can't be fixed. If you find yourself wanting to give advice to someone with a terminal illness, especially advice that's different from what the person wants to do or has decided to do, perhaps think about why you feel that need. Where is that coming from? Is it more for you or for the other person? There's a lot of people out there facing this situation. This is Glenn Buckland from episode six. He has a rare and terminal cancer called plasma cell leukemia. And their, their circle of care, be it their doctors or their family and friends, are giving them, you know, unloading their fears about the situation on people. So, you know, someone like me who says, okay, well, you know, X amount of time, and it's whatever, I have no fear and I'm moving on. You know, a lot of people that might share that are surrounded by people that say, no, 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 you know, you got to check out this trial or that drug or you've got to travel. And that in and of itself becomes pretty overwhelming. 
I, I'm so fortunate that everyone in my care circle, my doctors included, they support me. And now I'm pretty, pretty straightforward about how I feel and what I think. And so maybe it's just that nobody's come up with a better answer than what I've come up with for myself. So they don't challenge me. And they're very clear that they support me. And that is so helpful for anyone in this kind of situation. So support is key, but the support has to be tailored. What you may find supportive may not be what the person with a terminal illness finds supportive. For example, some people want thoughts and prayers, and other people don't. Um, but just, you know, it's the thoughts and prayers narrative. Here's Adam again. Uh, and we've, it's, it's been interesting because thoughts and prayers have been a thing in, in illness communities for a long time. Like you get a lot of thoughts and prayers. Uh, and I think now we're seeing a backlash uh, in the public sphere. I mean, I think that now people are like, it's become an internet meme, you know, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. Um, but I think just remembering that uh, oftentimes that the, the connection with our religious heritage for an individual can bring them great comfort. Um, but because one person's connection with that tradition brings them comfort doesn't mean that that will bring another person comfort who they're speaking to. Um, so I think that this is, I mean, these themes are sort of popping out here. Um, but, you know, uh, the thoughts and prayers might be good to, to comfort yourself, but, but maybe withhold those, <laughs> you know, when you're hanging out with seriously ill people. Because, you know, we're hoping for the same stuff. So what actually comforts the person with the terminal illness? What are they hoping for? Another thing to avoid? Trying to relate when you should instead focus on trying to understand. We tend to have these sort of cultural tropes. Um, I mean, I hear this one all the time, uh, which is like, you know, listen, Adam, well, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Um, that's another one that people just say in an effort to find some relatability in an effort to be like uh, sympathizing, I think, like, oh, I understand your fear. Um, I understand the uncertainty of not knowing what the future holds. Um, but the difference is, of course, that, you know, I get up every morning and, uh, you know, I've got some motor issues on one part of my body. I've got to make sure I take my seizure meds. Uh, oftentimes I'll have a headache. Um, so, I mean, that's not this strange, vague bus that you think could hit you at any time. Uh, for me, uh, you know, that bus is every single day in my home. So we need to listen. We need to try and understand what is it like for this person in this situation going through their own unique experience. Then there will be times when maybe you have gone through something really similar. And you actually can relate, offer support, encouragement, feel with the person, and maybe tell them what it's like to be on the other side. I was really encouraged, actually. Uh, recently, somebody got in touch with me whose um, brother had died, I think, like 25 years ago, you know, when they were, you know, he was, he was young when they were in their 20s. And um, he got in touch with me just to say that his brother's death had really shaped the lives of the whole of their family. He said sort of, you know, seeing somebody die and realising that death was a part of life had sort of shaped the way the whole family had lived their life. And, and he basically got in touch to encourage me with my retirement project. But also I, he was the first person that instead of saying, oh, my goodness, your poor family, had basically said, 
this they're going to be okay this is going to be part of what shapes who they are for sure it's going to be tragic and sad but you know this happened in our family and it shaped who we are and it's changed the way that we live and I found that so kind of positive actually and encouraging you know that you know it is it's possible for it to be significant but not traumatic for families so that's, that's my prayer for my family and so maybe part of trying to connect trying to understand what a person with a terminal illness is going through also requires us to be more open to talking about death directly i'm not afraid of talking about death or my feelings about death or mortality be more open to entering that space with someone who is nearing it in fact it can help to maybe ease some of the feelings of isolation that go with confronting those sort of big scary things. Just being able to take them out into the open and talk about them a little bit in the sunlight can make it a little bit less scary. But we really have to follow the person's lead on this one. Um, but again, it's like there's a some days I feel like that and some days I don't. And so I, I think if somebody wants to ask about that kind of stuff again, it's just probably the safest route would just be, you know, I have some questions about your experience, or I'd like to know about your experience. And, you know, is this a time when you feel like talking about that or ever, or is there a good time? I think really realizing that that person is just like in the middle of like a, just a storm of information and worries and concerns and input and dealing with a lot emotionally and so just trying to be you know leading with sensitivity to where the person is at on that day is probably always a wise choice leading with sensitivity and an awareness of where the person is at in any given moment seems so important so how do we handle all of this if we don't really know the person very well if we can't really read their cues. Maybe the person is a friend of a friend or a co-worker's partner or the deli guy at the supermarket. Whatever the relationship, if you don't know the person well, it's probably not a good idea to suddenly act like their best friend. People that I don't really know who've heard sort of second or third hand about my diagnosis sort of rushing up to me like they're my best friend and that they're really upset about it I find really quite awkward because actually it is quite personal medical information <laughs> um and again it's a bit like being pregnant I found you know how strangers kind of come up and touch your belly and talk to you about your babies you think that well, this is weird I don't know you that's the same with cancer I find that people sort of third hand hear about a thing and then try and talk to you about it so I would say if you don't already know the person quite well, if you wouldn't normally discuss personal things with them, maybe just back off. But if you know them well, then they won't mind that you're a bit awkward and that you're a bit upset and you'll work through it with them. So we need to be authentic when we talk to people who have a terminal illness. We need to be okay with not knowing what to say and just say that. Be in that space of awkwardness together. We need to be okay with silence and know that just showing up may be what's needed the most that day. We need to avoid giving advice unless the person wants it 
We need to lead with sensitivity and an awareness of what the person wants to talk about in any given moment. And we need to listen. Thank you so much to Claire, Adam, Jen, and Glenn for opening up and sharing your insights. And thank you to my friend Rachel for sitting me down that day, nearly 20 years ago, to tell me her story. I'm Alexandra, and this is Six Months or Less. In the next episode, I talk with Dave Warnock. He has ALS, and he is a former evangelical pastor turned atheist. What I try to do when I talk about the death act itself is to break it down and, and, and just kind of identify what is it and what is it not. I hope you'll join us.